This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. On this July 4th weekend, it's one from the heart. I hope, as you're listening, you're driving to a ball game or watching a burger fry over the fire. You'll find me at a water park up in the Catskills with the kids. And now, our regular listeners of this show know that over the past month or so, my pals Jeff Smith, Matt Bennett, and Steve Silverman have been filling in for me, and ably so. I've loved the shows they've put on. The reason for my absence and why this is one from the heart? Well, the last month has been a reunion of sorts. Back in 2009, a man named Joe Plumeri became my boss, and over the last five years, he's become a coach, a mentor, and a friend. And I'm lucky indeed for all of those roles he's played in my life. And now, like Captain John Yasarian in Catch-22, we're on one more mission together, perhaps the biggest mission of my life to date. It's like turning an old B-29 into an F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. If you have to go on a tough mission, there's no one better to follow into battle than Joe Plumeri, with 48 years of playing in traffic and winning on Wall Street under his belt. We'll get into Joe's amazing story in his own words over the next hour here on Polyoptics, but in brief, as we celebrate the American story this weekend, the journey that the Plumeri family has taken on these shores since his grandparents arrived from Italy in the last century is truly the American dream. It's moved from the streets of Trenton to the athletic fields of the College of William and Mary to the corporate boardrooms of the biggest global companies. From teacher to coach to CEO, offering leadership and communications lessons at every step. For business people and politicians alike, it's Joe Plumeri. Welcome, sir, to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. It's nice to be here. Joe, as we uh, get ready for this July 4th weekend on this 238th anniversary of our independence because you always like to start with the numbers. Let's look at some numbers. S&P near 2,000. Dow near 17,000. NASDAQ near 4,000. Bureau of Labor Statistics has the unemployment rate at 6.1%. Our borders, Joe, are being breached daily by thousands of new arrivals who still see America as the land of opportunity and their last best hope. In your view, Joe Plumeri, the status of the American dream on this birth, uh, holiday of our birth. I think the status of the American dream is still alive, but it's not as alive as it was when my grandparents got here. Um, I think that uh, the reason I say that is it's still alive because the natural resources of the company, our country abound. Uh, the amount of grain, the amount of uh, gas that we have, the amount of uh, meat that we produce uh, is unprecedented around the world. I think we need to take advantage of that I'm not sure we take full advantage of that. Um, I think that's why the American dream is still alive. I think people need to promote the fact that you can still do generationally better than you did before, which is what the American dream is. American dream is all about my kids being better off than me and their kids being better off than them. Um, and that's what the dream's about, is to be able to push that along. Um, that seems to have been halted a little bit with people um, 
uh, not feeling as good about that having happened because of the economy, because jobs have shifted, and because things have changed. And I think that has to do with leadership, and that has to do with promoting the fact that that's all possible. Leaders got to get up and be able to promote the American dream, make people feel good uh, about them being better off. My father, you know, taught me that it was good to go to school, work hard, and to make money. That was good. Um, and I'm not sure that that part is is as good as it used to be. So I think that the opportunity is still there. I'm not sure that the fashion of that opportunity being promoted by our leadership is there like it used to be. Well, let's go back, Joe Plumeri, to the way it used to be six, seven decades back to Trenton, New Jersey. I mean, I found this little clip from a documentary, but I think it describes the life that I've heard you talk to me so many times before about what it was like to be a son of, Sam, of Samuel and Josephine Plumeri. Let's hear a little bit going back to Trenton. Every town has a heart, the one place where everybody goes, where everybody meets. In our area, that place is the intersection of state and broad streets. In years gone by, downtown Trenton State and Broad Streets was one place everyone can recall with some romantic retrospection. It was at State and Broad that you may have met your buddies before painting the town red. Maybe it was where you promised to meet your boyfriend before that all-important date at one of the local movie theaters. One thing is for sure, almost everyone in this area has said, I'll meet you at State and Broad. Joe, a lot of uh, meetups at State and Broad for you. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how you found that. It's probably one of our conversations. I told you that, and you, and you were able to put it into succinct language. Yeah, Trenton, New Jersey was neighborhoods, um, I row on row neighborhoods. Uh, I could hear the bathroom in the next door. Uh, Mr. Kadunikia, uh, I could hear every movie made, whether he was good or bad. And that's why I grew up, and it was just a wonderful childhood in Trenton. Uh, in those days was booming, uh, manufacturing mecca. Trenton makes the world takes. Roebling was there, made the wireless for the George Washington Bridge and for the for the tap uh, for the Tappan Zee Bridge and for the Golden Gate Bridge, and so things were flowing well. The sort the, the 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 center of the universe was State and Broad, and you used to hang on the corner of State and Broad, see everybody, and if you were cool, and it was 1958, 1960 uh, to 60, um, you had a car and you drove as low as possible, and all you could do is see your eyes, and you could wave at people, and you were cool. And I remember those days like it was yesterday. But there was a sense of foundation of a center of something, um, which can, I think, be emblematic of the culture of today, that there's no center. It's just spread out. There's no sense of of being someplace so that you can meet all your friends. It's sort of like Cheers. You know, everybody knows your name. Uh, everybody knew my name, and I knew everybody else. And when you think of the culture in which you asked me earlier about the American dream and where it is, I think we got to get back to the center of some sort of a culture because I think the cultural issue in this country is a big deal, and we got to get back to maybe there's no Trenton, New Jersey the same way, and maybe there's no state and broad the same way, but we have to resurrect the sense of there being a state and broad. Well, I mean, in Trenton, Joe, everybody knew your name. They knew the Plumeri name. Uh, you were very comfortable because, you know, as an ethnic melting pot, a guy like Plumeri was fit in perfectly. But as we pass from the 50s to the early 60s, uh, Sam and Josephine say, Joe, you go to the College of William and Mary, head down to Williamsburg, Virginia. Right. And I want to play a little clip because I found this this newsreel of what 
Williamsburg was like back in the 60s to have that feeling because you not only had to assimilate into the college, you became part of that town and that history. Let's hear it. Like turning pages of an old album, the doors of the College of William and Mary are opened, carrying us into the past as we look down the Duke of Gloucester Street toward the colonial capital nearly a mile distant. Before we visit this restored city of Williamsburg, named in honor of King William III of England, we stroll upon the campus of the second oldest college in America. Joe, <laughs> that's cool. Talk that to, is really cool. Talk to me about going from Trenton to Williamsburg. Oh, my God. It was Fonzie showing up in Williamsburg. It was unbelievable. It was 1962, uh, Southern School. Um, everybody dressed in loafers. Uh, I didn't even know what a loafer was. Uh, khaki pants, basswegian shoes. These loafers were and madras shirts. Madras that bled. I might add, if it didn't bleed, it wasn't real. And Joe Plumeri shows up looking like John Travolta out of Greece. Um, so I was a little bit out of whack. I went there on a football scholarship, uh, um, which was, which is why I got into the place, frankly. So I was as out of place as you could possibly be. And that was my first cultural shock coming from the neighborhood to William and Mary and Williamsburg, Virginia, which was all colonial Williamsburg. I couldn't have been more out of place. But you were a tour guide. You became a tour guide. I of the did place. well. I, you know, I tried to fit into the college. The fact that I played football made me more accepted. I was the only Italian American from the North in a place where I certainly didn't belong. And I remember telling my father, "I don't think this place fits." He said, "You chose that place." You that your commitment to that place, you're dedicated to that place, you stay there. And that's the way things were in those days. You did what your father told you to do, and he taught me about commitment and dedication. Again, all the stuff about family, the values that you create is part of the American dream. And uh, I blended into the community. I played football. Uh, it was a hard school to go to. It's still hard. Um, um, I had a radio show just like you have. I did that between football and baseball season. Um, and as those days, jazz was big, and I was big in jazz and, and loved jazz and still then. And I was Joey, Joey Plumeri on Whammo, uh, William & Mary Station. Uh, and I did the Daddy Oda Radio just like I remember uh, Borgie Chadwick did. And, and so I was, it was cool. And then I drove the tour bus, and I made that fun and you know, spoke and drove the bus at the same time. So I engaged in the community, and I engaged in everything I do. And I guess it, at my age, in this stage of life, I'm still engaging and I'm still having fun. Well, talking about your whammo days, I mean, you've taught me so much about presentation and style and the way a person makes an entrance and the way the person makes an exit. And the person that you always pointed to as a guy that you took a lot of lessons from, you must have, sp have spun a lot of his vinyl because that's uh, the chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. Hear a little bit of his, uh, one of his tunes and then tell me how Sinatra made his presence felt on stage. It's quarter to three. No one in the place. Except you and me. So set him up, Joe. I got a little story. You ought to know. We're drinking, my friend. To the end of a brief episode Make it one for my baby And one more for the road 
You so, had to pick my favorite singer. I, it's mine too, Joe. So <laughs> this, pick, that's great. The stage presence of Sinatra. What did you learn from him? First of all, they never introduced him. <laughs> he just walked on the stage. One day, I aspire to walk on the stage and everybody know who I am. That's cool. Secondly, the 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 way he sang, uh, and the words that he sang were outstanding, and the selection of the songs. I mean, My Way, when you think about My Way, it's the power of being yourself. It really is basically saying, be who you are, do it your way. If you're gonna win your way, lose your way, but but do it your way, it's cool. Um, and then it's, you know, songs like You Make Me Feel So Young, which I sing to this day, uh, because I think it's poignant. Uh, poignant. Um, you always should be young and vibrant and enthusiastic, no matter what your age you are. Your age is statistical, but your heart could be very young and your enthusiasm and your energy could be young. I thought that, um, I think, I thought that his songs, the way he, the way he uh, handled himself and his presence, um, is a lesson, was a great lesson to me, and his words are a great lesson. As a matter of fact, uh, the only thing I want to be played at my funeral, and it will happen one day, unfortunately, I'm trying to prolong it as much as I possibly can, is all I want him to play is my way. Um, Joe, you and I uh, talk about our, our contrasting cultures very much. There's a word we have in the Yiddish language called chutzpah, and uh, it's, I under know I know that well. It, it's uh, it's not a, uh, a a trait that is uh, absent in the Plumeri family. I want to hear this rare clip of two baseball greats, uh, name of Ruth and Gehrig, uh, talking to each other and tell me how their relationship relates to the Plumeri family. Hello, babe. Hello. You know me, don't you, babe? I can't place your face, but your shadow is very familiar. I'm Lou Gehrig. Now do you remember me? Remember you? After the past summer, I'll never forget you. It's funny you didn't recognize me right away. I played on the same team with you all season. Yes, but you were so close to me, I was afraid to look back to see who you were. I gave you a great race, didn't I, babe? Boy, you ran me raggy. Listen, Lou, how did you get this talking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting. That's <laughs> great. Uh, they got another thousand bucks from another source, didn't they, Joe? My grandfather, uh, where I got it from, actually, you know, the sense of being out there, the sense of playing in traffic, that I like to call it, um, which is not necessarily getting hit by cars, but getting out there, knocking on doors, making something happen, is what I extol the virtues of. And as I preach, as you know, Josh, every day, my grandfather asked somebody one day after he... Uh, obviously he was a Sicilian immigrant, how do I become an American? How, how do I Americanize myself? He said, you got to get involved in baseballs back in 1927. So my grandfather decided to uh, do something very unusual. He borrowed one, 10 $100 bills from friends and said, I'll give it back to you in an hour. Uh, went to Yankee Stadium, stood outside the clubhouse after the ball game, waiting for Ruth to come out. And he spread the 10 $100 bills out to get his attention Ruth said, what's that? He says, you come with me, I'll give it to you. Uh, his idea was to barnstorm with Ruth and then eventually Gehrig uh, around the east coast of the United States after that. And 27, for everybody that doesn't know, was an epic year for baseball. They hit 60 and 54 home runs respectively. So he barnstormed around the United States with him. I have a picture, as you know, with my grandfather meeting him at the Trenton Station. So I learned a lot about Kutzpah. I learned a lot about 
um, getting out there and taking chances. I learned a lot about asking, which you know plays a big part in my life later on, uh, and basically engaging, because if you don't do any of those things, nothing is going to happen. And that's how I guess I was bred by my father and my grandfather. And that's one of the great stories, I think, of all time. You know, it, it, and it, and we're talking about some interesting years in American history and world history, the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And you talk about the 27 baseball season and the amazing triumph of Ruth and Gehrig. But there's this shadow coming over the world, and that's Nazi Germany. And another one of your heroes, because life is not always easy. Sometimes you have to do the hard thing and sometimes do it with enduring immense pain. And that was the prime minister of Great Britain and Winston Churchill hear a little bit of one of his famous speeches. We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Boy, that's emotional to me. I, every time I hear that, I don't know that there is more, there's a better or more stirring emotional speech, which goes to the issue of leadership being motivating. Um, and I learned a lot that you can learn a lot about statistics and marketing and all the fancy techniques that you have to enjoy in being a leader. But leadership is really about motivating people and a sense of passion and a sense of emotion which drives us today, which I hope our technology in the world of iPhones and Google and texting and emails don't take away from the very core of what we're all about, which is motivating people. And that's one of the most motivating speeches that is probably you'll ever hear and probably the most motivational. Italian kid from Trenton finds a lot in common with... British guy from Harrow on the Hill who stepped up in the darkest hour of Great Britain. You've stayed quite involved uh, with uh, Churchill over the years, haven't you? Well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a board member of the Churchill Museum in, in London, which is a big deal. You know, for an American to be part of the Churchill Museum uh, in London is a big deal. I've always been a Churchillian because I thought he was always himself. You know, you talk about the cigars and the champagne and and sitting in a bathtub and dictating with both things in your hand. A guy who was who he was, which I really think you need to be. And if and if I've been anything and I've made enormous mistakes in my life, I think it's been that I've been myself, and I'm I'm proud of that. But when you think um, about Churchill, I remember that you know after all the things he did during the war. Uh, and you certainly can look back and anybody, and it's arguable that he did not single-handedly um, make the the British people fight on. When you think of of the of the of Dover and all of the things that happened there, he um, gets beat at the end of the war, knocked off. How the heck can this happen? Um, gets a speech, gets up, gives a concession speech, and says, "My fellow Brits, success is never final. Failure is never fatal. All that's important." is courage. And if you want to look toward one thing and you tell your kids, just remember this speech, remember what he said, when you're up there and you think you've made it and you're at the top of your game, 
success is never final. You just got to keep getting better and better and better. That's why people say to me, it's never enough for you, Joe. And I said, I remember, you can always never stop getting better because success isn't final. And failure is not fatal. When you're down and you're out and you feel bad and you think the world's coming to an end, it's not over. You got to have the courage to come back. So to understand the, the both sides of the emotional spectrum but remember that you get up every day and it doesn't matter which one you're on you still have to have courage uh, if there's one phrase and there's one speech and there's one thing that and everybody quotes Churchill uh, that's the one I think you got to remember Joe Plumeri talking about courage and talking about being yourself and sometimes well, the very tough times when you have to even bottle up the emotion that you have and, and put it put aside the anger that you might have. And that story begins, well, it begins well before 1947 when Jackie Robinson came to the Brooklyn Dodgers, but it continues throughout his career. And here's a little clip from 1963. So this was long after Jack had, had uh, established himself in the major leagues. He's on with Ed Sullivan on The Ed Sullivan Show. What would you say would be the first thing that these little fellas made to 12 should remember? Well, the first thing I would say, Ed, is that they should not imitate a Willie Mays, for instance, while he's at bat. They must get their own style. Get in the batter's box, be comfortable, because, uh, as you know, the real good hitters all are, are individual players. They have individual styles. So for a little leaguer to try to imitate one of the big league ball players, they'll get into some awfully bad habits. Talk about courage, Joe Plumeri. That's cool. That is really cool. As you know, uh, I believe in the power of being yourself. I mean, basically, he said, don't, don't, just be yourself. Don't look at Willie Mays or even Jackie Robinson, for that matter. Just be yourself. Um, and, and I think that's Jackie Robinson, you know, to me, as you know, Josh, I'm very close to Jackie Robinson Foundation. I think Jackie Robinson was the beginning of the civil rights movement. Which and without knowing that he was the beginning of the civil rights movement, because in 1947 it took a great deal of courage, and I highly suggest that people watch the movie 42. It's fantastic. It's a story about courage and dedication, um, holding on to your emotions, doing the right thing, um, and because uh, and I think leadership is a lot about imitation. Uh, it is a great deal about watching the leader behave and the way you behave and the way you carry yourself means a lot to the people who watch you. And I've thought about that all the time. So when you think about a Jackie Robinson and you watch the way he behaved, it led the way to the Don Newcombs and the Campanellas and the Hank Aarons and you know what happened after that, all because one man had the courage to be able to get everybody's respect because of the way he behaved. Again, getting back to this leadership issue, which is so cogent to the world today, uh, and the idea of leaders being genuinely concerned about the people that are around them, concerned about the people who watch them, and this whole sense of warmth and this whole sense of emotion and passion, which far supersedes all of the technology of the day. And that's why I'm so, I admire the Jackie Robinsons and the Churchills so much then, because they were all about statesmanship and athleticism, but at the end of the day, Think about what they said, and it's their passion and emotion which drove them and drove other people to watch them and admire them. 
Absolutely, Joe Plumeri. I'm Josh King. We're, our conversation with Joe Plumeri uh, will continue after this break. You're on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild because he knocked that ball a solid mile. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. Satchel Page is mellow, so is Caponello. Newcomb and Dobe, too. But it's a natural fact when Jackie comes to bat, the other team is through. I'm Josh King on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, and we are back with my friend Joe Plumeri, uh, who I've learned so much from over the last five years. Joe, we were talking before the break about Jackie Robinson's uh, symbolism and how even in 1947, when he came to the Brooklyn Dodgers, you might say that uh, that was a major milestone in the civil rights uh, era toward uh, what happened actually 50 years ago this week, which is Lyndon Johnson signing the civil rights bill and passing out those 70 or so odd pens uh, in the East Room of the White House. And you and I also were both uh, privileged this spring to see Brian Cranston as LBJ in All the Way. And you know, although I know you're a Republican and uh, and you sh- you have deep conservative values, you've always admired what LBJ represented. So I want to hear a little bit of Cranston's LBJ and talk about that uh, impression on your life. This is the most important election of your lifetime, and the choices couldn't be clearer. Lyndon Johnson, ambitious, impatient, tortured and troubled in a million different ways all captured by actor Brian Cranston. And him and the rest of his Harvard Blue Bloods would look down their nose at me like I was some kind of country bumpkin. In three hours, you see him go through a myriad of, of emotions. It's rare to be able to have a character that, of that scope. I'm grateful for it. So, Joe Plumeri, it's the 1960s, and you're seeing that guy struggle with all those issues in the Oval Office, but also get past massive legislation like the Civil Rights Bill. I actually uh, think um, that Lyndon Johnson will go down in history as one of the great presidents of all time. Um, my republicanism, as you know, is fiscally responsible and socially inclusive. And I want to make sure all the listeners listen to that because I actually think that that's the way the world is and should be. Government should be responsible um, fiscally. Uh, but we should include everybody. If we did not, I wouldn't be here. My grandparents wouldn't have been here. My father wouldn't have been here. And I think we forget that sometimes, especially when it comes to issues like immigration and things of that nature. I think what Lyndon Johnson did was um, um, very visionary. Uh, when he saw that he had first had to have the courage, uh, he, had, he had the power of being himself, Uh, to enact a a civil rights legislation that was the intelligent thing to do, but emotionally knew 
that it would not fix things overnight, but it had to start the it had to start the movement. It had to start the ball rolling, which is what we all got to believe. Sometimes we believe that one person is not good enough or can do enough to make things happen. But you got to start someplace, and he basically did that. The whole idea of the Great Society was the essence of people taking care of each other, is what that meant, and a partnership between government and people and this vision. We got to have a vision. I went back to this thing, whether you're a president, an individual, a vision for yourself, a vision for your company, what's your purpose? The guy's purpose was to make sure that this country got together and people started to work with each other and to uh, pay attention to each other and have a sense of, of the fact that we're all Americans and that we all need to go forward together. That was his sense of the, of the, of the great society. That was his sense of who he what, thought the vision and the purpose of this country was. And I think that that was just great stuff. And we can learn a lot from the courage that he showed and a sense of passion. You heard passion in that man's voice. It was an actor, but it was passion in that man's voice. And again, I'm going back to passion. I'm going back to the American dream. I'm going back to purpose. I'm going back to the fact that he was really concerned uh, you know, about uh, race. He was concerned about diversity. He was current concerned about every American understand, no matter who you are, the most important thing is that you're an American. And uh, and there's no one more American, I think, than uh, who's demonstrated it for me over the last five years uh, than Joe Plumeri and his family. And I want to now turn a little bit more toward your own story as we move from the 60s into the 70s. A young Joe Plumeri is uh, uh, finding his way in the business world. He's coming up with these outrageous ideas, these great dreams. And sometimes they involve getting on a plane from New York to L.A., uh, showing up not knowing anybody and coming out with a deal to create a movie studio called uh, First Artists. And, you know, First Artists has come and gone, but it, it leaves a great legacy in the film vault of the National Archives. One of those is Paul Newman in the life and times of Judge Roy Bean. And I want to hear a little scene of Newman with John Huston. What are you doing there in the middle of nowhere digging a hole? A grave. When that wheel come off my wagon, I took it for a sign. This here's my dying ground. There'll be no illegal dying. The only people that die in my town are those that I shoot or hang. Get along with me. Can't die here. Can't die there. Man can't even die where he sees fit no more. I want no part of what this world's come to, and I'm glad my days are to nail. <laughs> Joe Plumeri, how does a kid from Trenton become a movie producer? <laughs> I, I don't know if I was a producer, but I uh, I had an idea as part of an idea that uh, that uh, in, in the early 70s, movie studios were having a big problem and that um, what they should do is the stars should create their own production company um, and they don't have to make big epic movies when they were making Cleopatra and Tora, Tora, Tora in those days. Uh, and not very making much money. So put a production company together, get some stars. Uh, it's not funded in any way. You take the thing public because the stars. The and who movie, are the stars? Streisand. Streisand. Sydney Poitier. Sydney Poitier. Um, Paul. Uh, Steve McQueen. Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman. Uh, later. And um, so we got all these people together. It's too long a story to tell on this on this show, but we finally got them together. I, you know, was part of, you know, instigating all of that. 
um, make a company called First Artist Production Company Limited, take the company public at five and a half, and it goes all the way up to 20. It's eventually bought at Paramount, but, um, by Paramount. But the, the, the real story was is that these movies were not the greatest epics. That was the life and times of Judge Roy Bean, which was not an epic. I think they, they cost him $3 million. They grossed 10 or 11 or 12, you know, in those days. And every movie, except for The Getaway with Steve McQueen and Ally McGraw and probably Papillon, were the most memorable, you know, of the movies. Those two voices you heard were Paul Newman and Stacey Keach. Um, uh, but w that was about dreaming again. That was about me as a little boy watching the Academy Awards, wanting to go to the Academy Awards, maybe getting an Academy Awards. And if you don't start with this sense of emotion and vision and dreaming and all of the things that we talk about that are throwaway words every day, that's where it starts. And so the idea that, of doing this production company and having this vision of being in Hollywood and all of this sort of stuff, Stuff, all happened, you know, because of a kid who grew up watching the Academy Awards, went to the movies and said, one day I want to go up in lights and I want to have a house in Hollywood and all that. You can't get to where you want to be. Passion doesn't come first. The vision comes first. The vision's so clear and, and, and it's so purposeful um, that the pit, it then generates the vision, which gen, or then generates the passion, which generates the plan to get there which generates the execution of what you got to do with the plan and then what happens is the reality of that dream coming true in the absence of all those things um it's fantasy <laughs> so back in uh uh in your then you come back to the east coast and you're moving up in the business world and we've talked to <coughs> joe Palmieri about lyndon johnson and <coughs> want to focus on another president for a second because uh, you've always used Gerald Ford as an example of a guy who made a big deal out of little things. And I want to hear a little bit of Ford in an interview after he left the presidency about uh, um, uh, making a big deal out of a, well, making a big deal out of a big thing, but how he figured out what message he needed to give to the United States. The country will always remember that stirring speech of yours when you took over. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Did you really believe it was over when you said that? That's an interesting thing, Phil. Uh, you know Bob Hartman, who was my principal speechwriter, and Bob put together a draft. I read it, and that phrase, the long national nightmare, sort of jarred me. And I said, Bob, we really ought not to use that. Uh, Let's not be too harsh. Let's not be too uh, dramatic. And Bob really put his foot down and he said, uh, that is an accurate expression of what has taken place and you've got to keep it in the speech. So after thinking about it and talking to Betty about it, uh, we decided to leave it in and boy, in retrospect, uh, I'm awfully glad we did. Joe, you and I spar a lot over what to put in messages and what to take out of messages, and I'm sort of like Hartman, pushing, 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 and you're often sort of a voice of moderation for me, but the lessons that Jerry Ford taught you? Oh, my goodness. Um, hearing him speak again makes me emotional, Josh. One of the great human beings. Forget about president, and, and I know that he was vilified over the decision 
you know, to pardon Nixon. Um, but I had the great pleasure in my life to know uh, Jerry Ford. We were on board together, played golf together a lot. He wasn't the greatest golfer in the world, but what a pleasure to play with. Um, he'd always play in these celebrity tournaments, and obviously the crowds would be on either side of the fairway, and he would invariably hit somebody, uh, and he felt awful, and the media would jump all over him, and, and he'd look at me, and he says, I do these tournaments, Joe, so that we could raise money, and I'm not the greatest golfer in the world, and I tell him that, but yet I hit somebody, and the media says another gaffe, like I fell down the steps of the airplane and all this sort of stuff. Um, the Jerry Ford, I remember... Uh, helped a friend uh, who was in very bad shape uh, uh, be buried in Arlington Cemetery, um, which is a very long story that I tell a lot because I wanted to make sure that um, uh, Jerry Ford helped me help a friend that he didn't even know. Um, and it's usually the things that people in our life, um, we always decide, I think it's a human tendency to decide whether people... Uh, should do things for people because of their, it's a value to them. And you really expect something back uh, rather than, again, this whole idea of warmth and genuine concern and want to help people. And he went out of his way to help a friend um, of mine get buried in Arlington Cemetery, um, which was a, just a... And that's when I learned that if you want to be a big person, make big deals out of little things. Uh, and he certainly did that. And then the story of uh, when my son was 13 years old, he was in a hospital suffering from anorexia. And I don't mind talking about it because he eventually, um, you know, turned into having drug problems and then passed away. But and I only say that so I can urge parents not to be neglectful and pay attention to their parents. But I was having dinner with he and Betty in uh, in Hawaii just before a big trip at uh, Shearson. And we were talking about children and families and problems with drugs. And because, as you know, she founded the Betty Ford Center. And um, without mentioning where my son was being hospitalized, um, other than to say the name of the of the hospital, um, three days later, my uh, son called me or four days later. And he said, I just got a letter from Jerry Ford, like Jerry Ford was just another person um, saying, I just had dinner with your father. He loves you very much. It's important that families stay together. Um, and uh, uh, he went back to his room, had to, um, remembered the name of the hospital, looked up the address or had one of his people do that and penned uh, a letter on his own writing um, uh, which was so heartwarming to me, uh, makes me emotional every time I think about it. Um, but that was what Jerry Ford was all about. And he taught me, which is to this day why I write notes, which is to this day that I answer every call, which is this day, no matter who it is, I try to make a big deal out of little things. And you learn by your mentors in life whether they they were supposed to be mentors or not, you, you watch by watching other people, which is why this whole issue of leadership and what you say and how you say it is so important and so vital, and I think a lesson that we need to learn today um, in this country. Joe, uh, when you think about um, making a big deal out of little things and genuine concern, it brings us forward in your career to 1987 because 
people have invested their money with you. You've created these relationships one-to-one with people. And on October 19th, 87, the bottom comes out of the market. And we began this conversation with the Dow nearing 17,000. But let's go back to early CNN and Myron Kandel and the way it sounded like on the air that day and what a guy needed to do to hundreds and thousands of people who just needed to be reassured that the person who was looking after their money had concern for their welfare. The biggest drop uh, that we've seen in modern times, certainly in uh, numerical terms and getting close in percentage terms. Right now, the, the closing bell has sounded on the New York Stock Exchange, but they're still counting, and they will be for some time, the final trades. But right now, the figures we have, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has plunged more than 500 points today, taking the Dow down to 1746.09.32 points today. Well, Joe, if you had invested that day, you'd be a very wealthy man. <laughs> I'm only laughing because that's a normal day <laughs> today, especially when the Dow's over 17,000. Um, what was it like for you then? Uh, well, it, obviously, that was a big deal then. It was the worst plunge since the Great Depression. And um, I had 10,000 brokers that I was responsible for that day. And again, I, I know I've said this so many times about being concerned about people and life feeling that uh, people need to feel there's somebody that cares and watches over them. And um, uh, I had a system uh, those days at Shearson that was called Radio FCN. We called them financial consultants, and it was a, a, a radio or a, a, a squawk box system where people were on all day giving information to financial consultants. And I remember after the close, uh, I got on, and I just talked to people and told them that I was there, uh, that the best thing that they could do is talk to their clients because their clients needed to be hugged. Uh, what I'm doing for you is basically telling you I know it's a tough day. People are calling you left and right. You feel badly for your clients. You feel badly that this happened. Um, but hang in there. Tomorrow's going to be better. Uh, these things tend to have a bounce effect to them. Um, and you gotta, you got to make sure that there's comfort in your voice when you're talking to your clients. And basically what I was doing, Josh, was doing to them what I wanted to do to their, cli- them to their clients. And every day for a week or two, uh, because you had, you had everything plunging, mutual funds plunging, everything plunging. I got on every day at the same time, and I said, I'm here. I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't have any stories to tell uh, other than to say, I'm here. Let's talk about your issues. Um, I tried to give it the motivating speeches. The fact that I was there and I showed up, but I can't tell you the power of showing up. Uh, which to me is a big deal. That's the playing in traffic part. Just get show up, do something, um, because just by being there, they it it showed them that I was truly concerned about them, that I cared about them, and that if I did that to them, maybe they would do that to their clients, and their clients needed their hand to be held more than ever at that point in time. So when I look back at that, and I look back at the effects of that, and of course you know what happened after that, everything was great, but the relationship that I built with so many financial consultants, interestingly enough, most of whom I knew by their voice, 
because I was on there all the time and they knew me and they would say, hello, Joe, I got a question for you. And it would be a guy from Yakima, Washington. And I remember and I said, how's Gasparetti's restaurant? And I remember to this day and that's not a made up restaurant because I was there in Yakima and I said, how's that lemon sole? It's great lemon sole. We go back <laughs> and forth. And that's the kind of relationship that you have with people that we can't lose in this country. You can't Google that. You can't text that. You can't email that. That's just a back and forth. As long as we balance the technology of today and the back and forth and that genuine concern that I talked about, which is a great example that day, is probably the thing that I remember most of my, I remember a lot of things in my in my career and in my personal life. But what we did those days and the fact that I was on so much, built relationships with so many people. And I think in a lot of ways, they took what I did and they turned around and said, this guy could do that. I can do that with my clients. And I think, again, as leadership. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, Joe, you and I were at the SALT conference in Las Vegas and you'd just given a speech and there was like 2,000 people out in the uh, in the ballroom that day. And then we were walking on, on a concourse in the casino and it was amazing to me how these random people kept coming up to you and, you know, at various from various junctures of your life with a similar experience of you having reached out to them and helping them. And sometimes, Joe, you might not have remembered their name, but they never knew that because you had all this that this uh, personal way of sort of getting back to that restaurant or making some connection and getting back into that groove. I, I think that and you were with me that day as we were walking from the dinner to the car to fly home and I was blown away by how many people who I did not know walking the other way toward the concert that night um, saying to me great speech that was terrific that was great and da 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 it made me feel good um, because I spoke in a way that was passionate I spoke to them individually I spoke to them uh, to their needs. I spoke like to them like I cared. Yeah, we were talking about, you remember, there was a lot of economics in the speech and there was a lot of politics in the speech. But embedded in those um, uh, very statistical kinds of conversations was the sense of humanity and a sense of emotion and passion behind uh, motivating being. At the end of the day, as you know, when I speak, uh, I assume they're not going to remember what I said, but they're going to remember how I made them feel. And those comments that day had to do with the way I made them feel, which means I exhibited a sense of, of, of caring for them and a sense of being part of them, which I think lacks in American politics today. It's so much about party and it's so much about people being you know, affiliated with this and affiliated with that and their position and, and that position. And I think what lacks is the warmth of somebody coming across as somebody that truly cares. I'm Josh King, and we're talking with Joe Plumeri on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124. We'll continue our conversation with Joe after this. Every time it rains, it rains. Pennies from heaven. Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? You'll find your fortunes falling all over the town. Be sure that your umbrella is upside down. 
trade them for a package of sunshine and flowers. If you want the things you love, you must have showers. So when you hear it thunder, don't run under a tree. There'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. I'm Josh King, and you are on Polyoptics on SiriusXM Channel 124, and we are back with Joe Plumeri. Joe, relationships with people long-standing have been such an important part of your life, and we started in Trenton, where uh, you know people might have looked like you, they might have sounded like you, but through the course of your years, you the people that have had the most enduring relationships uh, really begin in the most interesting ways, and they come from the very different backgrounds. And a guy who uh, showed up and was your roommate at Bordentown Military Academy eventually went into the National Football League Hall of Fame. I want to hear a little bit of his speech in Canton, Ohio. I am still standing, and I give all the glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I am truly blessed to be standing here on this day to celebrate my journey as a person and as an athlete. I only wish my mom and dad were here to celebrate with me. I know my mom is looking down on me today and she's saying, Floyd, I'm proud of you. You've done good. Joe, that's uh, Floyd Little, three-time All-American Syracuse, led the Pro Football League in rushing from 1968 to 1973, retired as the seventh leading rusher in NFL history, and one of your best friends. Well, again, I'm very emotional. Uh, Floyd and I uh, met in 1962. Um, People forget in 1962 segregation still existed, and... um, Floyd was only the African-American at Bordentown Military Institute. And uh, we, we wound up together, and um, which was unlikely. Uh, but I guess they did their research, and they knew I came from a very mixed neighborhood where uh, lots of my friends were African-Americans back in the 50s, which was unusual. But that's the neighborhood I came from. That's why I'm so inclusive uh, with regard to the way I feel about the world. Um, and... Um, um, uh, Floyd and I uh, uh, were very good friends. We went to school together, um, and I, re- I remember, you know, very well uh, taking him to my mother's house every Sunday because Bordentown wasn't far from the house. They let us out on Sundays, and he'd have lasagna and meatballs, and he would eat more than she made, um, and she made a lot. That was really tough. Uh, and then over the years went on to great sa- fame and success. But I, I, I think the relationship, again— um, I'm go- I keep going back to this and, and, and until it's, it's probably boring. But again, the relationship between two people coming from, even though he was an African-American, I was Italian-American, we basically came from the same neighborhood. And, and you come from the same neighborhood, there's a sense of closeness. There's a sense of core that we made reference to before about state and broad. Uh, and that core really is what's needed to be able to make society very strong because you got to be strong in its core. Um, Floyd and I to this day, as you know, um, uh, are very good friends. Um, uh, we stay very, very close. He and his friend uh, or his uh, wife, uh, 
Deborah are good friends of mine, and uh, it's one of the relationships that I cherish in my life, but I cherish it uh, most of all because of, um, of the way it started and uh, the birth of that relationship. And it came from two kids, ethnically diverse, um, but uh, humanly the same. And the time I met uh, Floyd Joe, the first time I met him was in London. I think that Broncos were coming to play the NFL game at Wembley Stadium. Floyd was a, a you know longtime uh, uh, NFL Hall of Fame alum, and he was coming joining the team in London. You were then uh, chairman and CEO of Willis Group, seventeen thousand people around the world, headquartered both in uh, in London and New York. So you spent about half your time there, and he called me up to the office on the 16th floor, and, and, and there's Floyd Little standing there. And, and, you know, there's so much about your 12 years at Willis uh, that stand out, but one of them has to be that time in June 2009 when you looked at this huge tower in Chicago, Illinois, trying to find a place for to f- cram three or four Willis offices from around the uh, Chicagoland area and put them in one place, and you looked at this big towering black icon and decide that's the place, but we need to put a new name on it. Hear a little bit of the news report from that day. One of the world's tallest and perhaps most iconic skyscrapers has a new name. Fill it away. Come on, guys. Let's go. Chicago's Sears Tower is now known as the Willis Tower. The London-based insurance broker Willis Group Holdings secured the naming rights as part of its agreement to lease 140,000 square feet of space in the building. This is the beginning of things that are bright for not only Chicago, but for America and for the world. Joe, uh, if there's anything that says anything is possible, it's, it's that moment. How did it come to be? Well, you know, I, I, I truly believe that, Josh. I think anything is possible. Um, if you have a core to you and you have an infrastructure to you that believes anything is possible, then you can go out and do anything. But if you have a sense that nothing's possible, you're never going to do anything great. You're never even going to reach out and do things that are special in life. And uh, we had just um, we had just merged uh, or acquired a company called HRH, uh, Hillbro Gallon Hobbs, at the worst possible time, I might add, in June of 2008. Little did I know the economic depression was upon us. Uh, Excuse me, but we did the deal, and um, we had six offices in Chicago, and I needed to merge them. So I remember um, having my friend Carmine Bildello, our mutual friend Josh, who was head of real estate, and I said, "Carmine, we got to get. Tell me what buildings are available to put space in." We got to merge all the people, integrate them, get one culture. And he gave me different names. One of them was the Sears Tower and had 80% occupancy, which in real estate business isn't great. Um, uh, And I said, let's go after that. I think we can get the best negotiating strength after that. Um, So Carmine went to see, you know, the ownership. Uh, Then I got involved and and, um, uh, we negotiated a lease that was very cheap. Um, It was... uh, uh, at least that I can't mention on the air because uh, I, uh, uh, I I told the owner I wouldn't tell, so that way it would inhibit him from getting higher prices in the building. But I told him um, after we negotiated a very low lease, I said, you know, one of the problems you have with this building is Sears, the name, 
uh, is a jinx. I'm not talking about the company. I'm talking about Sears Tower. In those days, people were afraid that would be the next attack because it was the largest building in the in the Western Hemisphere. And I said, if you change the name, then the whole idea of of it being the next target would be um, would be something you really I think would be great. And so I I, I told them that I'd do the deal if you changed the name. Um, um, uh, he thought it was a, um, uh, a, a ridiculous thing for me to ask him to do. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, he did it. Uh, we constructed a fantastic deal. And as you know, I'm telling the short story here. The long story is too old to the too long for the show. But that I remember getting the deal done finally at a very cheap rate and the name of Willis replaced Sears. And I remember telling him, now things are going to get great for you. Things are going to be terrific because you changed the name. And I never forget the day of the dedication of which you played um, a clip. Uh, that night I was on uh, Nightly News with Brian Williams and he says to me, "What? why did, after all these years, the name is the Sears Tower, you show up and they change it to Willis Tower. And they thought, and in Chicago, they didn't like it very much because it was a British company. They thought I was British. Um, and it was just terrible because Chicago, appropriately so, loves its names. It's a great city. And the people really, whether it was Marshall Field or the Sears Tower, thought it was, you know, it was terrible that we changed the name. Um, and so Brian Williams says to me, what did you do? that after all these years, you had the name change. And Sears hadn't been in the building since 1993. And I looked in the camera and I said, I asked. And I tell people that story a lot because it strikes them that a lot of times they don't ask because they don't think it's possible. And I keep telling them anything is possible if you believe that it is. And if you believe that anything's possible, you're going to ask. And so it starts with me believing anything is possible. It starts with me believing that I or we or the country can do anything if we ask, meaning that we actually try and we do something about it. So it's less about a building. By the way, the building is now fully occupied, I think. United Airlines and Continental Airlines merged. They're now in the building. It's their headquarters. Um, and I'm very proud that they're in the headquarters of the Willis Tower. And to this day, it's all because I asked. And I urge all of your listeners to believe that anything is possible and go out and ask and go play in traffic. Joe, uh, one of the people that have been uh, so deeply involved in your life, both as a board member of your company and also as a friend and counselor in, in really tough times, uh, is Joe Califano talking about one of the aides to uh, Lyndon Johnson, then future Secretary of Health and Human Services, and a board member of Willis, and also the uh, head of the Center for Alcohol and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. And you mentioned your son, Chris, earlier, and I want to hear a little bit of Joe Califano uh, talking about his work and related to what happened and also what we have to do more with our kids today. The National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University has been working for three years to identify the true cost of substance abuse and addiction to every level of government, federal, state, and local. This is the first time any such analysis has ever been undertaken. We conducted the analysis of public spending because we believe that most American taxpayers do not understand the enormous cost 
of our failure to prevent and treat smoking and alcohol and illegal and prescription drug abuse and addiction. Joe, I'm a father of a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. I've not faced the toughest years uh, that I will as a dad. You have. What do young fathers and mothers need to do more about the kids that they're bringing up in American society? First of all, I would tell you, Josh, that Joe Califano is a great American, um, a patriot, and a great friend and advisor. And I, I can't say enough about a human being um, than Joe Califano. And as you know, we go back to Lyndon Johnson. He was a, a, a big aide and had a lot to do with great society. And you talk about courage. I just want to make sure your listeners know that he was the guy in 1978 that was fired by Jimmy Carter for banning smoking in federal buildings, which I think was the beginning of the effort to stop smoking. Um, and I go back to Joe Califano. I want to make sure you know that. Um, I became part of uh, CASA, the Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, um, at Columbia University because of his cause and um, to get rid of this terrible, terrible disease called drug addiction, as well as substance abuse and all of the things that go along with it. Um, I had a terrible uh, tragedy with my, my son who struggled with drugs all his life. Um, um, and as much as you, you, you try to do as a parent, um, when I look back and I say this, and you know I say this publicly, as a parent, uh, pay attention. Um, uh, make sure that your children know you love them. Make sure you spend time with them. Make sure you don't neglect them and make sure you know what's going on, everything on, on and everything in their life. I don't think I did that. Um, I wish I had, uh, but I'd like to use this message um, um, that if I had, I think my son would still be with us. Um, and um, on a serious note in, in, in this show, it gives me the opportunity, and thank you for asking, to tell every parent out there you got the power to be able to influence your child's life and influence, influence their environment. And if we're ever going to do anything about the drug problem we have in this country, which is a big problem that politicians and government have not addressed or addressed seriously as they should. It's got to be about parent power and the ability parents have and influence the environment, influence the society, and influence their children. Um, learn from me. Uh, and you're going to be saying a lot more about that, I think, as, as you work throughout this summer getting ready to uh, hope to publish your book uh, early next year. Um, and as we come toward the fa final few minutes of our conversation with you, Joe Plumeri, on polyoptics this week, uh, just diverting a little bit toward uh, the political scene and, uh, and Independence Day and how they all mold together. You know, you and I have been talking a few, over the last few weeks about the message of uh, rebirth of American entrepreneurism, rebirth of uh, American small business. We've looked at some shining examples of, uh, of where that is flourishing. One of them happens to be in downtown Detroit and the Shinola uh, company that makes both watches and leather goods and all sorts of luxury items. And they've really been uh, uh, making such a a wave and giving such a great example, even from uh, a guy uh, I also respect a lot, the 42nd uh, president of the United States. Let's hear a little bit of a news report from Detroit when President Clinton came to town. 
Beaming with pride, these watchmakers and craftspeople were ready to embrace former President Bill Clinton. In town to tour the Shinola Manufacturing Factory and Leather Facility in Midtown. The watch and bicycle company invited him down after learning he is a fan of their products. We've seen pictures recently of President Clinton actually wearing Shinola watches. Clinton, who got to see how the watches are made, is such a fan of the Runwell model, he has two. I liked it because I thought it was elegant but informal. I really like it. Thank you very much. But I also have one with the tan band. Okay. That's a little more informal, more of a sport watch. Uh, Joe, there's no one like uh, you, yourself, but also uh, uh, on the flip side of the coin, sometimes Bill Clinton. But what Shinola represents and what we're doing now at First Data is really trying to help uh, rekindle the uh, the dream of American small business through uh, helping them grow in so many ways and you know it, it the, the the old adage of going from shit to Shinola and and turning around uh, businesses and ideas that that might have been headed in the wrong direction is something that you're so passionate about I I remember that phrase when I was growing up but it's so poignant today because it, it represents something that wasn't so good uh, to something that could be good, which is what the American dream is all about. Uh, I happen to still believe in the American dream. I'm a patriot. Um, I told you I'm passionate. I'm emotional. And I think that everything has to have a purpose. It, it starts with a purpose. And I think if politicians understood that the purpose of them being in office is to make the life of people better, then maybe they could get more accomplished rather than the purpose of standing on whatever they believe is important. Um, if you do that, uh, then you're never going to be able to uh, make the country better, make the American dream come true, and I think purpose is going to be lost. That's number one. Number two, what we're trying to do in any business uh, is to be able to say, what are we really here for? What are we here to do? And if you don't answer that question, then you're never going to do the things every day to make that happen. If you're just making a product without that product having a purpose, then it's not going to happen. Um, what we're doing at First Data, which is the largest processor of payments in the world, is go to a from a, a transaction business to a solution business and saying to the to the nine million merchants, and if I include you know um, uh, micro merchants like doctors and people like that who accept credit cards, there's 19 million, and if the purpose is to be able to help them grow their business and make their lives easier and help them succeed. That's a greater purpose and a greater reason for being in business. And then that everything you create and everything you do and everything you manufacture and everything you innovate is toward a purpose. So I'm getting back to this. So whether you're a politician listening to me, you're a person that's just trying to make a difference in people's lives, uh, you're trying to um, build a business, Understand that it first starts with a purpose, which in me, in my terms, is a vision. You take that vision and you get so passionate about it and people will see what you really mean and what you really feel in your heart. And that will motivate other people to do things they never believed they could do. Joe Plumeri, it's been such a pleasure to spend the last hour with you hearing uh, the stories from both uh, early on at, in Trenton to uh, London and then back to uh, the United States. Always a, an incredible journey that you take people on whenever you're in front of audiences, whether they're 
3,000 people in front of you in a big room or hopefully 25 million listeners of SiriusXM. Uh, so appreciate the time you've taken with us on on Polyoptics today. Josh, the, um, the ability to go back uh, and toward all these memories uh, actually is more, less of a reflection on the memories but more of a validation of who I am today, um, which has been... Um, very nice to do, and I appreciate the invitation, and I appreciate you inviting me, and everybody needs to know that the guy you've been listening to for a long time is one of the genuine people that I've ever known. And we will go out, uh, listeners, with uh, some comments from the third president of the United States as he was drafting the Constitution in honor of uh, July 4th, 1776, Independence Day, United States of America. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For we come on the ship they called the Mayflower. We come on the ship that sailed the moon. We come in the ages most uncertain hours and say, Tomorrow's gonna be another working day And I'm trying to get some rest That's all I've tried to get some rest